The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Thanks, Jared. Morning, everybody. How you doing? Um, greetings from uh, all the folk at uh, Disciples Church at Springfield, which is uh, where we normally are on a Sunday morning. Uh, nice to be with you today. Um, the last year has been the worst year for sickness. I don't know what it's been like around here, but just about every week we've got half the church away because somebody's sick with something, and it hasn't just been COVID, but we've just been beset with everything else that's been doing the rounds, so um, I assume it's probably maybe been a little bit the same here, but uh, hopefully we're coming out of that. I've been praying for an outbreak of wellness, um, and so I'm hoping that the warmer weather might usher that in for us, so um, hopefully that will be uh, what we experience over the next little while. Um, Earlier this year, I I preached through a a section of Genesis from 25 to 35, um, uh, and looking at the life of Abraham. Uh, Abraham, Jacob, sorry, thanks honey, glad I brought you along, um, and um, just, just keep doing that if I, you know, it's going to be one of those mornings, um, on the life of Jacob, and um, so I, I, I chose one of the passages, although I just sort of whispered to Fiona this morning, I'm not so sure it was the wisest passage to choose with all the kids staying in, but anyway, um, I'm just going to trust in God's sovereignty, and uh, we'll just, we'll roll with this. Um, if, if you've got a Bible, um, turn with me to chapter 34. It's, it's one of the ugliest chapters in the Bible, um, and uh, so I'm just going to, I'll read it through, I'll seek to unpack it uh, with you, um, um, and I hope the kids' activity sheets are really engaging. All right, let's, let's hear from God's Word. It says this. One day Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. But when the local prince, Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, saw Dinah, he seized her and raped her. But then he fell in love with her and he tried to win her affection with tender words. He said to his father, Hamor, get me this young girl. I want to marry her. Soon Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were out in the fields herding his livestock, he said nothing until they returned. Hamor, Shechem's father, came to discuss the matter with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious that their sister had been raped. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing against Jacob's family, something that should never be done. Hamor tried to speak with Jacob and his sons. My son Shechem is truly in love with your daughter, he said. Please let him marry her. In fact, Let's arrange other marriages too. You give us your daughters for our sons and we will give you our daughters for your sons. And you may live among us. The land is open to you. Settle here, trade with us and feel free to buy property in the area. Then Shechem himself spoke to Dinah's father and brothers. Please be kind to me and let me marry her, he begged. I will give you whatever you ask. No matter what dowry or gift you demand, I will gladly pay it. Just give me the girl as my wife. But since Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to him, we couldn't possibly allow this because you're not circumcised. It would be a disgrace for our sister to marry a man like you. But here's a solution. If every man among you will be circumcised like we are, then we will give you our daughters and we will take your daughters for ourselves. We will live among you and become one people. But if you don't agree to be circumcised, we will take her 
and be on our way. Hamor and his son Shechem agreed to their proposal. Shechem wasted no time in acting on this request for he wanted Jacob's daughter desperately. Shechem was a highly respected member of his family and he went with his father Hamor to present this proposal to the leaders at the town gate. These men are our friends, they said. Let's invite them to live here among us and trade freely. Look, the land is large enough to hold them. We can take their daughters as wives and let them marry ours. But they will only consider staying here and becoming one people with us if all of our men are circumcised just as they are. But if we do this, all their livestock and possessions will eventually be ours. Come, let's agree to their terms and let them settle here among us. So all the men in the town council agreed with Hamor and Shechem and every male in the town was circumcised. But three days later, when their wounds were still sore, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords and entered the town without opposition. Then they slaughtered every male there, including Hamor and his son Shechem. They killed them with their swords and took Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived. Finding the men slaughtered, they plundered the town because their sister had been defiled there. They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys, everything they could lay their hands on, both inside the town and outside in the fields. They looted all their wealth and plundered their houses. They also took all their little children and wives and led them away as captives. Afterward, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have ruined me. You've made me stink among all the people of this land, among all the Canaanites and Perizzites. We are so few that they will join forces and crush us. I will be ruined and my entire household will be wiped out. But why should we let him treat our sister like a prostitute? They retorted angrily. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray quickly. I think we need to pray after that. God, we thank you that your word is true and that it is honest about the world, about humanity and about sin. And we thank you, God, that it also has the solution to this, our biggest problem, which is the sin that separates us from you. Would you help us to see that really clearly today and to see your love and your grace in the wonderful plan of redemption that that you have for the world? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2020, when we're all sort of learning about COVID and trying to figure out what uh, we should be doing uh, about that, a, a young fellow in the eastern suburbs of Brisbane, he stole a car. And he took it for a joyride. In the process of that joyride, he, he ran over a young couple who were crossing the street. And they died. Including the unborn baby that she was carrying in her womb. A few months ago, this young man went before the courts and he was found guilty. And he was sentenced to 10 years in jail. And with time already served, and with the generous parole provisions that we have in Queensland, he will be out of jail in four and a half years, at the age of 23. 
The family of the victims were outraged and ultimately the Attorney-General appealed the sentence and I believe that that is still to be reviewed. The question that I want to propose today for all of us, the question is this, how do we deal with sin? How do we deal with sin? What's the answer to sin? We see these stories on the news all the time. We may have experienced bad things that have happened to us as people have sinned against us. We may have sinned against other people. In fact, I'm sure you have. It's not just a problem in Springfield. How do we deal with sin? Conservatives say we just need harsher punishment. If we just make sure that the punishment fits the crime or is even worse than the crime, then that will be the deterrent that will stop people from sinning. Progressives say, well, we need to understand the sinner more. We need to figure out what it is that makes someone commit a sin. Because if we understand what it is that, that, that motivates them to do that and, and we can address the problem back there, well then prevention is going to be better than punishment. In the time of Jesus... Uh, during his three years of public ministry, he was in Jerusalem and there was a, a tower that was built over what was called the Pool of Siloam. This was a pool of water that they thought had particular healing properties and people would often go there to sort of get in, into the water. And one day, just out of the blue, this, the tower that was built over this pool, it, it fell down. And 18 people were killed when this tower fell down. And all of the locals were trying to process this. So just trying to sort of sort this out and, and, and just sort of work out for themselves what, what was going on here with all of this. And they basically started to resort to what the, the Buddhists and Hindus um, call karma. And so they went to Jesus for a bit of a, an opinion on this. And they said, they said to Jesus, did all of these people die because they were worse sinners than the rest of us? And Jesus' answer was, was this here from Luke. So this is what Jesus said to them. He said, were, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. What an interesting answer. What an interesting answer. At, at, at first glance, you're like, oh, okay. And, and then you sort of find yourself trying to figure out, well, what, what do you actually mean by that? Well, one of the things that I'm sure that he meant is that God's way of dealing with sin isn't to go around dropping towers of bricks on people's heads. Not that he wouldn't be absolutely justified in doing that because the Bible tells us yeah, we, we, we've all done things wrong. We, we, we're all sinners. So, um, you know, God would be justified in doing something like that. But if that was his current modus operandi, well, he'd have to take out everybody, kind of like what he did back in the time of the flood or with Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened there. 
But as we look around and we see all of these things that are happening in the world today, I just want us to wrestle with that question this morning. How do we deal with sin? And the chapter that we're looking at today is one of those chapters in the Bible that's just brutally honest in its description of sin. There's no sugarcoating it. It's really hard with the kids around today. But there's just no sugarcoating this. And what's so incredible about this is that these are the good guys. These are the good guys. These are the guys described as God's people. This is the guy, like just, just before this, you know, um, Jacob's had some time with the Lord, and the, and the Lord said, I'm going to change your name. I, I'm, I'm going to call you Israel. You're not going to be Jacob anymore. Oh, Jacob, you're going to be Israel. You're going to be the father of a great nation. And this nation is going to be my people. And I'm going to pour out my grace and my love and my mercy and my blessing on you like you would not believe. They're the good guys. They're God's people. And not long after that encounter with the Lord, this happens. The horrific acts described in this chapter, though, are a window into the human condition. And it's a pretty sad state of affairs. So I'm very thankful to the Lord that the Bible doesn't finish at the end of Genesis chapter 34. Because that would be terrible. Jacob and his family and his servants and his livestock, they've arrived safely back into Canaan. You might remember the story. Um, Jacob had to flee because he thought his brother Esau was going to kill him and he probably would have done back then. Um, and as he was leaving the, what became known as the Promised Land, as he was leaving Canaan, God, God appeared to him in that great sort of stairway to heaven, ladder to heaven uh, dream moment that, that, that he had. And God said, as, as you go, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your socks off. I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to watch over you, I'm going, to, I'm going to protect you. And God did all these amazing things in his time in Padanaram. And so as he left Canaan, he left with basically the shirt on his back. He comes back to Canaan and he's got all this stuff. He's got wives, he's got children, he's got servants, he's got livestock, he's got money. He's become an uber wealthy man. Left with nothing, comes back with everything and he unwisely decides to go and settle in the town of Shechem now what was unwise about that well what was unwise about it is that when he was leaving when he had that stairway to heaven moment uh, with God on the way out he made a vow to God that when he came back into Canaan he would go back to that spot which we now know is Bethel he would go back to Bethel and we would worship God there that's what he vowed to do. But when he came back, did he go straight to Bethel? No, he didn't. He went to Shechem. Why did he go to Shechem? Well, he went there because he's now the uber-wealthy man. He's now got some stuff. He's the man about town. He's got, he's got resources. And when you're out on your own, those resources, it's like, well, that's cool that I've got some stuff. But when you're near other people and you can compare yourself to other people, it's like, well, now I'm somebody. I'm on my own. There's nobody to compare myself to. So I'm just on my own. But if I go where there's other people and they don't have stuff, but I've got stuff, well, then I'm the man. We all have these ambitions, dreams of inheriting wealth. This idea, well, wouldn't it be cool if I found this 
rich relatives that I didn't know I had and they died and left me all this money. And we have very noble thoughts about what we would do in that situation. In fact, sometimes we're even tempted to do deals with God. God, if, if, if you ever just decided that I would be the person that you should bless with lots of resources, well, man, I would, I would be such a blessing to the world. Like the things that I would do with those resources, the churches I would plant, the missions I would fund, churches I would build, oh, man. God doesn't often give us that because he knows our hearts. Jacob was blessed beyond belief. He said, God, I, you do all these things. You bless my socks off. I will come back here. I will worship you. And then you get all the wealth. And all of a sudden, it's really funny how then we become very entitled. Well, of course I should have a Porsche. Like, I've got to get places quickly. Like, you know. You know, those sorts of things start to happen. Those sorts of things start to creep into our minds, right? And so Jacob, instead of going to Bethel, he goes to Shechem. And this really ugly thing happens. I'll pick it up, verse, verse 1. One day Dinah, the daughter of uh, Jacob and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. But when the local prince Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, saw Dinah, he seized her and raped her. But then he fell in love with her and he tried to win her affection with tender words. He said to his father, Hamor, get me this young girl, I want to marry her. This is a heinous, evil act for which there is no justification. Dinah was uh, innocently taking a walk, wanting to connect with some of the local girls in the area, but it all ended quite disastrously. And then the height of this young man to think that he could simply presume to marry her. I mean, that just seems absolutely crazy. I hope that seems absolutely crazy to you. It should have seemed crazy to uh, all of them. But it didn't stop him from virtually demanding his father to make it happen for him. The term spoilt brat comes to mind when I think of this young man. Verse 5, soon Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were out in the fields herding his livestock, he said nothing until they returned. Hamor, Shechem's father, came to discuss the matter with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what happened. They were shocked and furious that their sister had been raped. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing against Jacob's family, something that should never be done. I think Jacob's sons had a slightly more appropriate reaction uh, than Jacob himself did. They were shocked and furious, and rightly so, I think. Uh, Jacob, on the other hand, seemed to be quite measured about it all. He didn't fly into a rage. I think I would have. That happened to one of my daughters. And he even received Shechem's father Hamor when he came to see him about it. Not that he came to apologise, mind you, he just came to do a deal. He came to do a deal. And the deal involved Shechem marrying Dinah. Let's keep going with the story, verse 8. Hamor tried to speak with Jacob and his sons. My son Shechem is truly in love with your daughter, he said. Please let him marry her. In fact, let's arrange other marriages too. You give us your daughters for our sons and we'll give you our daughters for your sons. And you may live among us. The land is open to you. Settle here, trade with us. Feel free to buy property in the area. 
Then Shechem himself spoke to Dinah's father and brothers. Please be kind to me. Let me marry her, he begged. I will give you whatever you ask. No matter what dowry or gift you demand, I will gladly pay it. Just give me the girl as my wife. Hmm. So instead of a posture of shame, remorse, sorrow... Young Shechem comes in here with all the confidence of a real estate agent wanting to do a good deal. It's all pretty grubby stuff. There's no thought or concern for Dinah. It's all about him. Meanwhile, the, the two fathers, they're busy exploring the possibilities of what this might mean for their own wealth and influence. All of a sudden, the heinous act of rape is overlooked because of the prospect of profit and the acquisition of property. Hamor is pitching his idea and Jacob, well, he just seems to have dollar signs in his eyes. Ka-ching! And he's not worrying about his daughter at all. Jacob's sons, though, they, they did see it a little differently. Check this, verse 13. But since... Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah. Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we couldn't possibly allow this because you're not circumcised. It would be a disgrace for our sister to marry a man like you. But here's a solution. If every man among you will be circumcised like we are, then we will give you our daughters and we'll take your daughters for ourselves. We will live among you and become one people But if you don't agree to be circumcised, we will take her and we will be on our way. So we're told from the get-go here that this is not a genuine offer. This was a calculated act of deceit on the part of Jacob's sons. They played a hunch that the Shechemites were so eager to get their hands on Jacob's resources that they would be willing to go through the painful process of circumcision in order to get them. And remember, there's no anaesthetic back then. Well, not the kind that we've got today, anyway. So they pitched an argument that it would be disgraceful for them, for Dinah or any of their daughters, to marry an uncircumcised man. And and, and guess what? These guys, they bought it. They bought it hook, line and sinker. Check this, verse 18. Hamor and his son Shechem agreed to their proposal. Shechem wasted no time in acting on this request for he wanted Jacob's daughter desperately. Shechem was a highly respected member of his family and he went into sorry and he went with his father Hamor to present this proposal to the leaders at the town gate. I'd have loved to be there for that meeting. But you've got to be desperate, hey, I mean, maybe it's the power of love. Power of libido, I don't know. Shechem convinced himself this was worth the ask. And then he was going to front up to all the men in the town and tell them, hey guys, have I got a great deal for you? All it takes is cut off your foreskin with a blunt knife and we can get all of their stuff. Who's with me? was essentially the message that he took to this meeting. And look, maybe he was just a 
good real estate agent. I, I don't know. He, but he talks them into it. Check this, verse 21. These men are our friends, they said. Let's invite them to live here among us and trade freely. Look, the land is large enough to hold them. We can take their daughters as wives and let them marry ours, but they'll only consider staying here and becoming one people with us if all of our men are circumcised just as they are. But if we do this, all their livestock and possessions will eventually be ours. Come, let's agree to their terms and let them settle here among us. Verse 24, So all the men in the town council agreed with Hamor and Shechem and every male in the town was circumcised. Men, women, just excuse me for a minute. Men, how great an incentive would there need to be for you to agree to something like this? And there was really no guarantee with it. Like... like Shechem was like, well, I'll get the girl. So he's, he's assured of, like, he'll get something out of this. But for the rest of them, it was just kind of potential. It's like the possibility. Like, you know, maybe you'll get a wife for your sons. Maybe we'll get some of their stuff. Or they've got lots of stuff. But he sold the bigger picture. But there was, there was no guarantee that any specific one man would, would, would get anything out of this except for himself. But he sold it so well that they were like, yeah. It was simply the prospect of becoming wealthier. How powerful that can be. But it was enough for them. The lure of Jacob's wealth was, was enough to have them reaching for the carving knives. And they didn't muck around. They hopped into it. Every single one of them, every male person in the town, it says, was circumcised. Verse 25. But three days later, when their wounds were still sore, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords and entered the town without opposition. Then they slaughtered every male there, including Hamor and his son Shechem. They killed them with their swords, then took Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. By any measure, the punishment for the crime was excessive. They didn't confine their vengeful rage to just Shechem and possibly his father. They murdered every male in the town in cold blood. It was calculated, it was deceitful, it was barbaric. It was terrible. Now there might be some who applaud this and I've seen Christians do this. In fact, I've, I've even heard a sermon um, where this action was applauded in the vein of, yee-haw, God's people, you mess with us, watch out, because you will go down. You know that kind of thinking? But the reality is there is nothing about this that's commendable. Nothing about this at all. You cannot take a good positive point out of this. There's no command of the Lord to do this. God didn't tell them to do this. God didn't tell Jacob. God didn't tell any of his sons. There was no command of God to go do this. It was all their own initiative. They, they, they took, get this, they took the covenant sign of circumcision that was supposed to identify these guys particularly as God's people, the good guys. They took that and they used it in this disgraceful act 
of treachery and murder. What a great way of witnessing to your new neighbours about the goodness and grace of God. But that wasn't all they did. Just wait, there's more. Verse 27. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived, finding the men slaughtered. They plundered the town because their sister had been defiled there. They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys, everything they could lay their hands on, both inside the town and outside in the fields. They looted all their wealth and plundered their houses. They also took all their little children and wives and led them away as captives. So those Simeon and Levi's brothers weren't involved in the actual massacre. They were more than happy to join in the plundering of the town and they pretty much took everything, took everything of value, including all of the women and the children. So what did this prove? What did that prove? Well, it showed that the Israelites were not in any way morally superior or morally better than any of the original inhabitants of what became known as the Promised Land. They were no better than the people that they ultimately displaced. They were just as bad. They were just as sinful. It wasn't because they were particularly good that God decided to pour his mercy out on them, or that they were particularly noble, or they were particularly wise, or particularly righteous in any way. These guys were pretty terrible, selfish, awful, sinful human beings. Because it's true, and the Bible is consistent on this, from Genesis 3 right to the end of Revelation, that nobody deserves God's favour. And we might not have done some of the things that we see here in chapter 34, but when Jesus was teaching... He, he would always take these things to the next level of what's going on in our hearts, wouldn't he? So even though we might have done some of these things, we, could, we can hate someone so much in our heart that it's, it's like we've murdered them. Jesus said it's as good as murder. We're all sinners. We all fall short. This is the human condition. So our only hope, our only hope is the grace of God, and I'll talk about this in just a second. Um, let's just finish out the passage was Jacob horrified at the horrendous loss of life and the large scale theft that his sons had just performed well let's let's have a look verse 30 afterward Jacob said to Simeon and Levi you have ruined me you've made me stink among all the people of this land among all the Canaanites and Perizzites we are so few that they will join forces and crush us I'll be ruined and my entire household will be wiped out But why should we let him treat our sister like a prostitute, they retorted angrily. Well, he was upset. But he wasn't feeling sorrow for the Shechemites. He was worried about his own reputation. He was fearful that all of the other Canaanite tribes around the area would would gang up on him and his family and wipe them out. His concern wasn't for the poor Shechemites, his concern was for himself. He's very selfish. So here is just another example of Jacob being more Jacob than Israel. When God, when God said to him, I'm going, to, I'm going to call you Israel, I don't want you to be the old Jacob anymore, I want you to be the new Israel. 
But Jacob really struggled with that, which is why often in times when God changes someone's name in the scriptures, we, that the name change, it kind of sticks and the scriptures refer to them with the new name. With, I keep hitting that. Um, with, with Jacob, it's different because Jacob has this struggle. He has this struggle. The old sinful nature, the new calling that God has put on his life, he, he struggles between the two all the time. And on this instance, he's more Jacob than he is uh, Israel because he's not letting the Lord fight his battles. He's not prioritizing his vow to go to Bethel. He was not walking by faith. He was not trusting God. He was not leading with integrity. And the whole thing just ends with this almighty row between he and his sons. And then the chapter just ends. It just ends. Chapter 35 starts and it's, it's a whole different day and a whole different subject. They, they move on. This chapter just, just ends here um, at, at verse 31. No happy ending. No moral to the story. No great divine revelation or great self-revelation. It's just 31 verses of sin after sin after sin. And then it finishes. As I said at the start, I'm glad the Bible doesn't finish at Genesis chapter 34. Let me circle around to the question that I posed at the beginning. How do we deal with sin? How do we deal with a chapter like this? How do we deal with all of the things that we see on the news? I was going to say every week, but it's probably every day almost. In some part of the world, some heinous thing that's happening that we just want to avert our eyes to. That's just terrible. That involves such great suffering. Well, it's not the case that some people are sinners and there's a special group of people who aren't sinners. Fact is, we're all sinners. So if we can find out a solution to this, how to, how to deal with sin, then it's universally going to be of benefit to everybody because we're all in the same boat. We, we, we all fit under that heading of being a sinner. As I said, it might not be at the level that we've seen in Genesis 34, but we're all in that boat to some extent. But the answer is we can't. We can't. We can't deal with sin. We can't deal with sin because whatever answer we come up with, well, it just results in more sin. Sin begets sin begets sin. I think if there's one thing that we've learned from chapter 34, it's that. Sin begets another sin begets another sin. We're also tainted by sin ourselves that we are just thoroughly incapable of dealing with sin we can have the harshest of laws the harshest of penalties for crimes or we can have the most relaxed we can have the most permissive society in the world yeah anything goes you can go either end of the spectrum and the result will still be the same sin will abound is why we need the gospel the gospel is the good news of Jesus the gospel is the good news that God has done something about this sin problem that we all have we're in a predicament 
that we can't get ourselves out of. We need saving and God in his mercy is the saviour. God in his mercy provides the solution to the sin problem. We need that divine intervention and that's exactly what God has done in the person and work of Jesus. This is the argument the Apostle Paul makes in his letter to, uh, to the Romans. He says, having laws, laws don't save us. Laws don't save us. They only show us how sinful they are. Have a look at this. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Paul says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without the requirements of keeping the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. The only way to deal with sin is to repent of sin and put your faith in Jesus. We live in a, we live in a broken world where awful things happen. People get run over by cars and killed. Women get raped. Men commit wholesale murder. Property is looted and stolen and giant brick towers just randomly collapse and kill people. And they're just a few of the things that we've looked at in the last 30 minutes. So there's plenty of evil, sinful things in the world. But Jesus' response wasn't that you've got to build better towers, use better mortar, have better engineering, have harsher penalties, be more accepting of the presence of evil. No, what was Jesus' solution? He said, unless you repent, you also will perish. The way to deal with sin, and let's just get very specific for a second the way to deal with your sin the way to deal with my sin is to let Jesus deal with that sin he he, he went to the cross and he paid the penalty that we should pay for our sin We, we deserve to die we deserve for God to just wipe us out for the sins that we've committed against him But in his mercy, in his compassion, in his kindness, he took that on himself. God came in the flesh. Jesus of Nazareth came and lived the life that none of us have lived, a totally sinless life. Never committed a sin in thought, word or deed. Jesus never sinned. And then he gave that life. He didn't have to die for his sins because he was sinless. But he died for our sins because we're very sinful. And through faith, not good works, but through faith, he offers you and me, he offers us entry into the kingdom of God, which is spiritual right now, spiritual kingdom right now, but one day it'll be physical. When Jesus returns, and the kingdom of God will be this physical kingdom where sin will be no more, where the curse will be no more, there'll be no more accidents, sickness, Disease, curse is gone because sin is gone. And that's the world that you want to be in. That's the world that we long for. That's the world, like we pine for that. When we see all the sin and the evil in the world, we're like, oh my goodness, can we just 
Why is all this happening? This is so bad. This is so terrible. So the world to come is the world that we're pining for. The world to come is the world where Jesus has dealt with all of the brokenness of this world. And the only way that we get to that place, the only way we get to be in what we often refer to as heaven, but it's the the new heavens and the new earth, a renewed earth, an earth where there is no sin and, and its curse, the only way we get there is through faith in Jesus. Genesis 34, it's, it's, it's a picture of the current world that we're in right now. We sin, and then our response to that sin is to sin some more. That's just how we roll. You see that in marriages so often, or in, in just, just regular relationships. Someone sins against you, your instant reaction is you want to, well, you do that to me, I'll do that to you. Grace isn't our first response. We've got to learn grace. But that's, that's how we roll, because we're humans, right? We've got these sinful hearts. That's all we've got. It's the best that humanity can come up with. Harsher laws, harsher penalties, get tough on crime. So we build bigger hospitals, we get more prisons, we make bigger weapons, we elect cooler politicians, and we have great parties so we can forget all of our troubles. And yet God's word tells us the only answer is Jesus. So how do we deal with sin? Well, personally, we repent and we believe in Jesus. We repent of our sin, we believe in Jesus. How do we deal with somebody else's sin? We preach the gospel to them. We tell them the same message that Jesus told. You need to repent. You need to repent of your sin. You need to put your faith in Jesus. So that he will deal with your sin. He takes the penalty that you deserve and you get new life. You get the freedom that comes from this relationship with Jesus, the one who has dealt with the ugliness and the sin that's been part of your life up to this point. So we put our faith in Jesus personally and we share the gospel with others. That's how, as Christians, we deal with sin. Repent and believe or you too will perish. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.